Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. half of my conversation with Lisa O'Brien where she is presenting the non-perspective of the case. In episode 527, she's began to lay out the points that she believes proves the guilt of Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly. This week, we will conclude our interview with part two of my conversation with Lisa O'Brien. But what if he's innocent of these murders and he's a liar? You know what I mean? There, there, these are all these are all potentials out there. I mean, I and maybe I'm wrong, and I won't put words in your mouth, but I think that that most people that are really looking into this case have to have to at least consider the fact that we don't know 100 percent either way if they did it or didn't. I don't know 100 percent that they're innocent. Uh, and I don't feel like you, maybe you do, think you you know 100% that they're guilty. I mean, Scott Ellington's assistant when I was in his office told me this is, you know, what's crazy is that 25 years later, this is still an unsolved case. And that's coming out of Ellington's office. So I think there's but, there's well, a lot of doubt. The, the thing is, first of all, 100% certainty is never possible. I agree. In anything that we do. I agree. As far as what Ellington's employee says, it's not unsolved. The Alfred pleas, they are convicted. That's not a little minor detail that's insignificant. They, It's not unsolved. It's solved. They are guilty, according to the Alfred pleas. The only difference is that they didn't have to allocute in the hearing, and they can say that they're innocent. Well, and that, and that but was, they also acknowledged that there was sufficient evidence to convict them if they were tried again. Now, I've heard people and, say that, and that is typically the verbiage in an Alfred plea. And I'm not, I'm not trying to trip you up because honestly, I don't, I don't have it in front of me, and I don't remember. But I've heard people say that, and I've, I've, I've read some transcripts and watched of videos. I don't recall them having to say the part about, but I acknowledge there was enough uh, information or evidence to convict me. I remember them saying. I, and, and I can As be I recall, I, I recently watched Paradise Lost Three, and they say it's in my best interest because there's sufficient evidence to convict me. Okay, I, I don't remember that part, but I'm not saying you're you're probably right. And it, you're probably right. It doesn't matter whether they have to speak the words 
the paperwork that they sign has that in it. Right. An acknowledgement that there's sufficient evidence. And while we're on the Alfred plea, I want to point something out. The Alfred plea was not brought to them by the state. Patrick Benka came onto the case in June or July of 2011. They were doing additional DNA testing. All of a sudden, in July, he has lunch with Dustin McDaniel, and he's the one who proposes the Alfred plea. That's right. brought to Scott Ellington, and Scott Ellington agrees to do it. Mm-hmm. So that's they agree to do it. Now, they had hearings on their motions for new trial scheduled to begin in December. They entered these pleas in August. They entered the pleas at a time when they bore the burden of proof at those hearings. Mm -hmm. With my 20-plus years of legal experience observing plaintiff and defense in civil cases, the only reason to do that is if they didn't feel like they would win at the new trial hearings. And if the new trial hearings were denied, that would be the end of their claims of actual innocence. Right, but the same could be said about the prosecution. Well, the prosecution had no burden of proof at the hearing. Right, what I'm saying is that the prosecution could have just said no. I mean, because, yeah, it was, well, it was brought yeah, up by the defense, but what it... Happened, what happened at... Had Scott Allen, had Brett, Brett Davis, rather, uh, not been elected to take Judge Burnett's spot on the bench, that's what would have happened. But Scott Ellington was new. He didn't have a dog in the fight. I don't think that he's really a litigator. And I think that he was putting the cart before the horse, worrying about a retrial that hadn't been ordered. Uh, he may have also had some pressure from Byers and Pam uh, Hicks uh, as well. I also know that he didn't consult with the Moors until uh, the actually, night before the two. Uh, I, I actually know that he had he, that he did because I've seen the emails. From from whom do you know that? I I physically held the printouts of the emails with back and forth with Todd Moore when I was in Ellington's office. He has them all in a file, and Moore didn't want it. He did not want the, the, the Alfred plea, but they, he was consulted. Okay, because he and Dana talked about the meeting in Mike Allen's office the night before the plea. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know about any of that. I just, it, I guess it's not necessarily all that relevant. I just caught when you said that, that when I was going through the files, there are printouts of the emails yeah. back and forth between Todd. Not with, now, and I didn't say anything with Dana, because Todd was referencing his ex-wife, that he and his ex-wife disagree with this, and they don't want them to do it. Uh, but those were all... They're in the file. They're they're a public record in the file. But you couldn't get a copy of it. Yeah. Well, no, next time I go down, I'll copy them. I actually, actually, I may, I may have uh, taken photos of those or scanned them. I scanned a I bunch mean, of stuff. You know, and, and what were the dates on those emails? Was it August seventeenth, August sixteenth? They were. I mean, the minute the minute he was approached in July, he should have gone to Todd Dana and sat him down and you know talked to him about it. And again, like I said, I don't think he's a litigator. I don't think that he could see the indication of weakness. Well, everything you're everything everything you're saying right now is all is all speculation. But the fact is, to use well, it, well you, let me finish. The fact is to use the fact that the defense offered the Alfred plea as 
evidence that they didn't think they could win. And to, but to, but then to say that that's not true of the of the prosecution, I think is disingenuous because they obviously had concerns too. And uh, from uh, you're exactly right, it was offered by the defense, but it can't be done unless the prosecutor agrees to it and puts it before a judge, which is what he did. I think that everybody was concerned about what was going to happen next. And I also know that anybody that has worked in post conviction work knows that you know that that the hearing on December 11th, regardless of the evidence, they've been through it many many times prior to this was a gamble for either side. And I also know that, you know, a perfect example right now, look at uh, Adnan Syed right now. His conviction was vacated in in a post-conviction relief hearing. After, it was, after the hearing was ordered, a year later they had the hearing. Two years later, after, or it was six months later, they threw out the conviction. Two years after that, the state's appeal ruling came through and they upheld it. And now the state has appealed it again up to it. It's, it's going to be still years even after his conviction was thrown out, that he he may walk walk out of prison when this is all over with, and anybody that works in that in in that field, I mean, I know you have a lot of ton, decades of you have legal work, and I and I don't have anywhere near that, but all of the work that I've done is all in exactly this post conviction work, and see, and I've seen how the system operates, and to take somebody that's been that was a child, uh, or you know, early teens, early adult, put into prison, you're in there for eighteen years, one on death row, and to say, well, we can go through this and gamble. And then if we win, then it could be years before this is done. You might have a new trial or you can go home tomorrow. I don't think that's an indication of guilt any more than I think it's an indication of innocence that Ellington agreed to the plea and put it out there. I think it, I think both sides knew that going into that hearing was a gamble for them. And so they decided to just end it. And, and Ellington, you, 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 can't, you can't explain away him and put it all in the defense. They both made that decision. Well, again, my position is if you, uh, for example, if you're facing a motion for summary judgment that's going to dismiss your entire case. Or confirm it in your destined, or confirm it in your destined to spend the rest of your life in prison. You've got an offer on the table. Generally, you'll go ahead and take the offer. And that's, you know, this is kind of the, again, new trials had not been ordered. Right. So anybody anybody considering new trials is putting the cart before the horse. And look at what they had. The the DNA evidence was not conclusive as to innocence or guilt. And personally, I suspect that something in the testing that was going on in July perhaps did not exclude somebody. That's been thrown around quite a bit on... Facebook and talk is specifically from someone who I was having conversations with while I was in Ellington's office, which is sort of frustrating. But I actually made the trip to Ellington's office to get those DNA results that they told me they had. And after driving all the way down to Arkansas and they laid out all the case file boxes all over the place, they told me that they had the results. They were nothing. They were animal hairs. There was nothing in the results, but they couldn't find them. They searched all over and couldn't find them. So that was it was not the defense that was that was withholding everything. The the prosecutor said they had those results, but they couldn't find them. And and you can there's conspiracy theories as to what that means. Well, but in this particular case, there may have been results that the defense had not produced yet. Well, the so only Ellington may believe he has complete results, but that's not necessarily because the results, according to the original DNA order, were supposed to be filed into the record. But we know that didn't happen because in 2007, 
when Eccles was filing his uh, federal habeas claims, he was attaching reports from 2005 that were never filed into the record. Mm-hmm. So you think but that again, it wasn't. None of it was conclusive. No, I agree with that. I, to be honest with you, I think the biggest glaring issue that would have got them a new trial was the jury misconduct. You know, the, the fact that the that the jury foreman intentionally gets on the yeah. jury and the fact that they were discussing is part of their deliberation that they were discussing evidence that was not submitted at trial is clear and blatant jury misconduct and should result in it. And I would hope that you would think in any case, if we take away the emotions out of this case, that anyone that is convicted with a jury that's considering evidence that wasn't part of the trial, then they should, they should get a new trial. That's, that's not well, okay. In any, in any case. I don't, I don't believe that uh, the attorney who came forward, uh, frankly, I don't believe him. He waited 16 years to come forward. He's an attorney. When he was having these conversations with uh, with uh, the jury foreman during the trial, he knew they were improper, but he didn't do anything. He didn't call the judge and say, hey, I got one of your jurors calling me, which would have violated attorney-client privilege. No, it wouldn't have violated the attorney-client privilege. He represented Arnold's brother, not his, not Arnold. Okay. And again, he would not have had to disclose that he was representing Arnold. He should have just said, I've got one of your jurors calling me and talking about the case. He wouldn't have to reveal what was being said. He wouldn't be necessarily getting in any, any trouble. The judge would just say, have you been calling this person? Yes. Thank you for your service. You're dismissed. Now, and that would have been the end of it. So do you think... And that, like I said, he's an attorney who knew all of this was improper at the time it was occurring, but he didn't do anything. He didn't even seek a bar opinion as to whether he could do anything. So do you think that they did, the jury didn't discuss the Miss Kelly's confession? No, I think that the only thing that was basically happened was while they were making the little board, somebody brought it up because it, the fact of the confession was mentioned. Not the substance of it, but the fact of it. When was that? And somebody brought that up. Uh, there was a, a, a note on one of the jury notes. Oh, I, I know. I've, re- I've read the notes. I know that it was discussed. Led, Ms. Kelly's testimony led to arrest. Mm-hmm. Right, but where and that did... was the fact of it, not the substance of it, just the fact of it of its existence, and that was scratched out because that was something they weren't supposed to consider. I know the defense put forth all these conspiracy theories about the prosecutor blacking it out and the prosecutor hiding the notes and all these things, but in reality, I think what happened was it was mentioned again, not the substance, but the fact. Well, and, and that, and that, that, that that's what down, and then it was disregarded. That's what I'm asking you is when it was mentioned at the trial because it was supposed to be not at all allowed to be mentioned in the trial. Well, what happened was during cross examination, cross examination of Brian Ridge by Val Price, he was getting into cross examination about the sticks, which apparently weren't collected on May sixth, and he kept pushing and questioning, and Brian Ridge ended up, in response to one of Price's questions, saying he went out in July and collected him after Ms. Kelly's statement. 
Okay. And so, so your, your opinion is that was the only, that the jurors didn't consider at all the actual confession. No, it was all taken like from I said, that. I, I don't, I don't believe that they considered the substance of the confession. Okay. And yeah. I don't believe that they really considered its existence as a factor in deciding Eccles and Baldwin's guilt. Because again, when you look at those juror butcher paper where the juror notes were written, mm-hmm. they scratched out the references to Miss Kelly's confession, mm-hmm. testimony, statement, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And I mean that suggests to me that they were doing what they were supposed to do. Right. Okay. Well, that's <laughs> okay. We'll move we'll on from you know, And the the alleged jury misconduct as to Eccles and Baldwin would have had no impact whatsoever on Miss Kelly. I agree. Because he was tried by a separate jury. I agree. I mean, they had to deal with the recantation of Vicki Hutchison and a couple other issues. But yeah, I mean. Like I, I said, it was a crapshoot for either side if they if they went to that hearing as to what was going to happen, and both sides knew that, indicative of the Alpert plea, and and where this and where this where this part of the conversation began was you saying that, you know, when I said that they said it's an unsolved case, legal innocence or guilt is not necessarily factual innocence or guilt, and also the plea that's on the record is they are pleading guilty and maintaining their innocence, and the prosecution allowed them to 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 do that, which means what the record says is that they pled guilty but claim innocence and they were allowed to do that by the prosecutor which is still shooting right down the middle right but again it's and actually the alpha plea is legal and factual guilt okay i would disagree with that but not we could just, agree to disagree not just legal it's legal and factual so then um, them saying we it, plead guilty but words, we maintain our innocence is factual guilt correct okay um because if if they say Say Jesse Miss Kelly committed a crime, a felony, and he, you know, is on trial. That could be used as a sentence enhancement, even though he's maintaining his innocence. Okay. It's still factual guilt. Okay, I think I think we have a different interpretation of factual guilt, but we can move on from that and just agree to disagree there. Because I want to get we're already over an hour in, and I want to make sure we get to all your points. Oh, oh the big one was you said that you know the Jesse was able to correctly describe the injuries, uh, the cut to the face and the genitals uh, during his confession. And my point in the episode where we broke that down and just just my particular analysis of it was to source, which we do anytime we do a statement analysis, was to source the information. And so my opinion, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe he's recalling that properly, just off the top of his head. But he was shown a picture of Chris Byers who had, according to the autopsy report, Cuts on his on his lip, cuts on his nose. I've actually seen the photos that he has. He has cuts and, and bruises on his face. And they say, I understand a boy was cut. Where was he cut? He's cut on his face. So that could be sourced. And maybe not. Maybe he just knew that. But it could be sourced from the fact that he had seen a picture of a boy with cuts on his face. And then the the genitals, I would just, I would just disagree with you there. Jesse did not, you know, we even went through what all Jesse said. Ridge told him another boy was cut. Jesse didn't say another boy was cut. He said, I understand another boy was cut. Where was he cut? Jesse says bottom. And then Gitchell comes in and is in, and I don't remember if it was you or someone else I was discussing this with on the, the Facebook page about whether or not Ridge was Gitchell or, or excuse me, Gitchell was gesturing, but he said, you know, could he have been cut right here? So right here in the groin area, which I, I think it's, it's kind of absurd to assume that he's not pointing to his groin area when he's saying that. 
But all Jesse ever does is agree with him. Jesse does not offer any of that information up. He only agrees to their suggestion on that. So the source of the genital cutting would be Ridge and Gitchell and not Jesse. So, again, I I don't see how a picture of Chris is going to give him what happened with Steve. I, I don't, I mean, and I don't buy any of the animal predation claims. So, so let's stop there for a the second. The bodies were the way the bodies were found in that ditch. They could not have been preyed on by mammals. They could not have been preyed on by aquatic animals that did not exist in the ditch. And also, they could not have been clawed and pulled and and preyed on and not dislodged from the mud. Okay, so at the bottom. Of so, so your position is, I mean, that really doesn't have to do with that part of the, what we're discussing, but your position is that not a single animal predated on them or scavenged on them at all. No, not a single animal took a bite out of them, clawed them, nothing. Every single injury came from the crime. No, because if they had been preyed on by any animals, mammals or aquatic, they would have been dislodged from the mud and floating in the ditch. Okay. They were pushed down into the mud, not visible from the bank. Michael came up when Alan fell into the ditch, and then Brian Ridge had to go on his hands and knees. And neither Alan nor Brian Ridge was attacked by a snapping turtle while they were in the ditch. Mm-hmm. Well, Brian Ridge had to go on his hands and knees to find Chris and Steve. Mm-hmm. They were face down in the mud, which brings another problem is how does a turtle access front of their bodies when their bodies are face down in the mud? Right. Um, Can I, and and this is a sincere question uh, because I've never been able to source any of this and you might know better than me. How do you know exactly how they were down in the mud? Because I've never seen any of the testimony where they've explained exactly how they were pinned down into the mud. It. If you read Brian Ridge's testimony, I think I, I believe at both Miss Kelly and Eccles and Baldwin's trials, and I think I had posted a link of, to it on the uh, Facebook page. Mm-hmm. He testified. Now, Michael, we don't know for sure because he was dislodged and came up, and he was on his, I believe, left side. Well, yeah, I mean, because and that was one of the big questions because. You know, when Alan describes that, he says he felt something on his foot and he lifts his foot and more just pops up. It doesn't sound to me like he was stuffed and sucked down into the mud. It, all it took was him just lifting his foot up and he floats up. Well, let me let me put it. Let me see if I can I can ex- explain or describe. If they had been just left in the ditch, there would have been. It was only two two to two and a half feet of water. There would have been some natural buoyancy. Mm-hmm. And they would have, had they just been put in the ditch, their bodies would have been floating on the surface. Right. And and I've had it explained to okay. me by other investigators that have worked that have worked on the case that in, that they were that they were pinned down. Hang on, hang on. That they were pinned down with the sticks wrapped in the strings, and the sticks jammed down in underneath them is how they were held. But they weren't able to, other than you know saying that so and so told them this, and but that people on the scene told them that. But again, they weren't able to source that. All we know is, you know, all I've ever read well, is no, them describing when they lifted them up. The bodies, I don't think the sticks were used. The sticks were used for the clothing, but not the body. Right. We know that for sure, that it, they were uh, used for the clothing. 
the mud in that area is sometimes referred to as gumbo. Oh, yeah, I've stepped in. Well, not in that. Of course, that creek's gone, but I've in stepped the in the mud in the bayou. In the bayou. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what happened was they were pushed down into the ditch, into the bottom, and that mud kind of creates a suction. Mm-hmm. And that held them against whatever natural buoyancy they would have had. Right. And so... All the searchers, nobody could see anything in the in the ditch, mm. and they were there the whole time. Nobody could see them because they were down in the mud. And all it took was Mike Allen going in and brushing against Michael Moore, and that released him, and his body came back up. Right. But, no, sticks and strings weren't used to tie him down. It was just the the suction created by that consistency of mud at the bottom of the ditch, and there was probably quite a bit of force applied to the bodies to get them to stick Mm -hmm. the way they were, which could have only been done by human, not by, that wouldn't have been done by dogs or snapping Mm -hmm. turtles or uh, elephants or giraffes or lions or tigers or bears. We can agree that those last five weren't there. <laughs> and with that, let's move on. I mean, we we can go on for we obviously disagree on that point. We can go on for an hour about why we disagree, but we're we've already been there. You've been talking long enough, I think. Unless you got something else you want to add. I would I would like to make the point though, when you look at the experts, they don't agree on an animal. Spitz says canines. And Servion has a variety of canine and aquatic creatures. And they can't agree on specific wounds. Mm-hmm. You know, frankly, I don't see what difference it makes if they're innocent, whether or not the damage was done by human hands or not. But what they're doing is this is their effort to try and say, well, the state's case is totally wrong. See? Well, I think it would and go... if try to undermine the state's case when really they... They didn't do it very effectively because they brought in a bunch of different experts Mm. and tried to rely on their uh, years of expertise, but failed to recognize that they don't agree with each other. Right. So they're just offering new theories, additional theories, but not anything. And I have a problem with them speaking in such absolute. Okay. When, you know, that was one of the things with Peretti's testimony. He could say consistent with. He could say could be, but he couldn't speak in absolutes because he did not have the firsthand knowledge with which to speak in absolutes. Mm-hmm. Yet these experts are speaking in absolutes. Right. They're not saying it's consistent with or could be. They're saying it was. Okay, so we disagree on the animal predation, and and you disagree with the the experts that that testified in for a number of reasons. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Because I want to make sure we get through as much of this as we can. We're already, already pretty long here. Uh, one big one was that you said that you believe the Hollingsworth sightings of Damien Eccles at the crime scene and that you also believe that it wasn't Domini, but it was actually Jason. And you said that they came forward with this information before the rewards were often. So I'll, I'll start with that. It, it is a fact that the rewards were made public in the newspaper the day before these statements came out. We did we did research that back when we did that episode. So there was a, but it was like 10,000 then, it wasn't 30,000. And of course, you know, you've heard my issues with the credibility of the Hollingsworth. You know, it's, I always find it incongruent with people that are, that, that will talk about, you know, these statements, you know, if this person really saw this, then why do they have so many inconsistent versions? But then they'll hang their hat on Arling Hollingsworth, who has just as many inconsistent versions of the story. Even moving past that, I mean, I, I personally don't think it happened or it happened on another night, but based on all of the, the changing, manipulation of the story and e- even the addition of Sombra being with them when they saw, you know, she goes, she gives a statement that she saw three boys, not sure who they were, just saw one with brown hair. And then later it's no Sombra was with me and said, that's Stevie branch. I know him. I mean, those are indicators that she's clearly changing her story. That's all opinion. You agree with that. You believe them. I don't. So we can, we can move on from that. We and say we disagree there. The big thing for me is that, that you said that you believe she saw them with Jason Baldwin. And so that I always find an issue with, too, when the same people that say we believe them, when Tabitha and Narlene have said, no, that was not Jason. It was Domini. That's my my cousin. I know her. I saw her clearly. It was not Jason. It was Domini. But, you know, it's like they're telling the truth, but they must be wrong about this. And the only reason I could think of as to why they must be wrong is because it doesn't fit with the narrative. So it must be wrong. Well, no, the reason that I, I believe that they're they could be wrong because Domini was at home with her mother. Right. At the time that they claimed to have seen Eccles with someone on the servitory. So let's pause there for just a second. I'll let you finish it, finish it up because I, I, before we get too far ahead with that. So like what you just said is, is, is where my issue comes in. It couldn't have been Damien and Domini on the service road right then because we know Domini was home at that time. So to me, there's two options. Either they're, the bigger option is, well, they must be wrong because Domini wasn't there. But to take that and then spin on all this, like, no, but they were absolutely wrong and it was Jason. I think the obvious answer is she was wrong about the whole sighting. If you agree that Domini was home, we don't just get to just to make up the fact that it was a different person walking with them. But the, you have to look at the fact that Baldwin was about the same height, had a similar hairstyle. He was thin. He was wearing pants with holes in the knees, which could be mistaken for flowers on the knees. And Eccles was distinctive, and they knew Eccles, and so they're not going to mistake him. Well, no. And, or they're and, not going to mistake someone else for him. And Eccles, Eccles was also known to wear that exact, his, his black trench coat and black clothes all the time, always. Right. So, I mean, like I said, it's, it's more, it could have been Dominique. 
maybe he called her and brought her to the woods to show her what he'd done. I don't know. But it also could have been Baldwin. I mean, it could have been either or. And and really, given the jury could draw the inference that it was Baldwin. Right. Well, I, th- I think... Because if, of their similar height, similar hairstyle, similar well, build, etc. They could have drawn that inference. Why, I th- and that's not proper any more than, you know, anybody saying when it was Dominique. I'm not saying it's improper for the jury to make their opinions about anything. I'm just saying me personally, you know, I, I think you have to make a whole lot of speculation in order for that account to be right. From what you said at the beginning, it couldn't have been Dominique because she's a trailer, so it must have been Jason, even though they specifically said absolutely not. She's, they said she had holes in her knees and flowers, white flowers all over her pants. No, as I recall, it said flowers on the pants. Or, yeah, or flowers. I guess that's the way I interpreted it. She had holes in her, they described holes in her knees and flowers on the pants uh, when they now, described I, them. I believe it was flowers on the knees. Oh, I, definitely, I definitely know they didn't say there were flowers on the knees. But anyway, they also specifically said repeatedly, no, I, I, I saw her. I know my niece. That was not Jason. That was Dominique. And that's, I guess that's where I get a little frustrated because it's it's trying so hard to find some evidence there in order, instead of saying, well, they must have been wrong because we know Dominique wasn't there. It's, nope, they must have been wrong and it was Jason and they must have mistaken flowers for holes and their haircut was the same and they, the, the whole thing has to be changed with all these assumptions in order to make that a credible sighting. And that's not even to mention the inconsistencies with the statements repeatedly by all the different family members. So, I mean, again, we can agree to disagree there. I, I don't think I'm going to change your mind, and you're likely not to change mine, but I wanted to make sure you had the, you were able to make that point as far as what you do believe. Well, there, There is one thing I want to ask you about real quick. On the, the case number, uh, I believe you said the, re- the number should have been 555. No, I don't know what the case number is supposed to be. I had, and what I said is I, I have just read that that Ridge had another report after that that was in the 500s that was that was done that was put out there, after that. He wrote 555 on notes on May 8th when he talked to Todd Moore. Okay. But everything but, else in the file has 666. Right. They had pre-printed notes, so report forms all had 666. Everything before, everything after had 666. And you know how of incident report numbers, case numbers are assigned in a county situation or a city situation like the fire department or police department. Yeah, I know very well how they work. But uh, the detectives are not assigning case numbers and picking a case number that they think fits. It's done by someone else. Well, I I mean, I guess that depends on the jurisdiction because that's, we didn't just pick, we were, our, our standard operating procedures were we had a running list of the case of our incident numbers. And whenever we wrote right. out our next report, we went to the list and pulled the next number when we put it on there. Um, and in right. the, in the statement, and, and like I said, it could be wrong. That's, I, th- I think Mara Leverett wrote about it in her book too, where she had said that, uh, there was, you know, weeks later, they found another incident report made by Ridge where there were not this one, a different incident that was in the five hundreds. But I mean, it's, yeah, it's all rhetoric anyway. Unfortunately, with Meryl Leverett, she's going to spin anything to toward innocence because she has zero objectivity. Okay. Um, 
And uh, you know, I, if you're if you're a journalist, and that's one of the things with journalism nowadays, it's not about objective reporting; it's about advocacy for a position. Mm-hmm. You know, we we have to look at it. I don't think that the West Memphis PD at the time in May on May 6, nineteen ninety three, I don't think they had any clue that armchair detectives would be looking at every report, every note, every piece of paper generated in connection with their investigation of this case and critiquing them and critiquing it. Well, no, I think that, that that's true of, of every case. I find it all the time. And I mean, I've, I've dealt with many uh, detectives and former prosecutors that were not thrilled with me getting into their case, but you know, in, in our case and other cases, it's resulted in a lot of a lot of concessions on the part that they they did make mistakes and and have worked to right the wrongs. Um, right, I'm 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 not saying it's perfect. Like I said, I wish they had sat down and recorded interviews with every single parent, but they didn't. That doesn't mean they didn't talk to them, and that doesn't mean they didn't get information from them. And when you come right down to it. If people who supposedly had information had contacted West Memphis PD with that information, then, you know, people would have talked to Terry Hobbs or Todd Moore or Dana Moore or whomever. If if people had gone to the police, police aren't psychic. Right. So they don't know, you know, they, they need people when you know something, you see something, you say something. And that didn't happen in this case. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, I saw in the post-conviction, I saw a lot of people, police never came to me. Mm-hmm. I waited. They never came to me. Right. Yeah, and that's... That's an unreasonable position. Well, for, for me, the position is any case you can pick apart and say, man, I wish they would have done this. I don't have problems with that. You know, I I have issues in, in certain tactics that were used as a, as far as things being not done. It's frustrating. They should have done it, but it just is what it is. They obviously, and I think if this if this murder if murders like this happened in any smaller town in the in the country, it wouldn't be perfect. There would be just as there would be just as many, if not more, mistakes made anywhere. So I don't fault them for that. I I, I have issues with 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 some, some certain tactics that were used, but as far as what wasn't done, I I. I don't have any issue with that. It's frustrating, obviously, for all of us. We would all love to hear a recorded interview from every single person involved in the case, but that's obviously right. that's just well, not going to happen. That yeah, that wasn't their practice at the time, and you know, in 1993, equipment was not terribly prohibitively expensive. But you've worked for a county or city agency. Mm-hmm in your past life, and you know that y'all, as far as equipment goes, y'all are at the mercy of a budget committee. Mm-hmm. And you have somebody deciding whether or not you can have what you need right. to do your job. Yep. yep. And whether, you know, whether West of PD would have wanted cameras in every interrogation room or, uh, you know, recorders uh, on every detectives person, I don't know. But that wasn't their practice. And it's kind of funny to say that Eccles was a suspect from day one, and yet on May 10th, they didn't take a recorded statement from him. No, well, I mean, they interviewed him and gave him polygraphs, 
He was obviously a suspect. He had been given polygraph, but they they didn't record the statement. When you became a suspect, that's when the recorder came off. Okay, well. So they took a recorded statement from Mark Byers on May 19th before they ever tried to take a recorded statement from Damien Eccles or Jesse Miss Kelly or Jason Baldwin. Mm -hmm. And that was just their practice. I don't like it. I wish... I wish it hadn't been, but that's that's the way it is. Right. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, Lisa, we are we are like an hour and 35 in, and I've got a couple points. So I'm going to try to very, very quickly. Because okay. there's some there's some areas here that I know we're just going to disagree on. So one, the, the what I have left on the list here is... Um, the fiber evidence that was found, it was, I, I don't know if you'll agree or disagree. My position on this is these are fibers that would be found on any, so for example, the red rayon shirt the, anywhere. And I believe in, 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 and I don't, and I haven't researched this, but this is just what I've read other people talking about. So you might, might, might know better. That was analyzed later and proven to be that it was, it was not even consistent with that, with that, with that particular, what was it? Jason's mom's bathrobe that was also made out of red rayon. Were there, was there um, later okay. testing done? Yeah. I think you're kind of conflating a bunch of things. Okay. The red rayon fiber was found on Chris's clothing, which was not made of red rayon. Right. It was found to be similar to a robe in Baldwin's mother's, or of of Baldwin's mother. Right. That was made of red rayon. Right. Um, And and that's what I want to be clear about. The similarity there was that it was red rayon. There were no microscopic similarities. there was a uh, there is a test where you compare and and you have to read the the testimony from trial because I'm not a science person, but there is a test where you compare the known fiber from the evidence fiber with the evidence fiber, and it's a microscopic comparison. There are there's some I think it's chemical, but I'm not positive comparison for the rayon. Because it's a man-made fiber. Mm-hmm. For the the claim that you know any garment could have this, it's not necessarily true. Uh, Eccles' mother, Miss Kelly's stepmother, Dominique Tier and her mother, none of them possess a red rayon robe similar to this red rayon robe. Of Baldwin's well, I'm, I'm sure that the, that Baldwin's mother's red rayon robe wasn't the only one in West Memphis. Well, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying that it was the only one, but I'm saying if it was so common, you would expect that in one of the other three trailers of the other four female and Michelle Eccles, so five females, at least one of them might have possessed something similar. Well, did did they test all the clothes in? The victims' families' homes. The branch, uh, branch, they could not check because when the decision to, tr- to check it was made, the branches had uh, dispersed and moved back to Blyville. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did look at the Moore home; it was empty, I believe, and they did eliminate a red cotton fiber, a red cotton fibers that were found, 
mm-hmm. because a red cotton shirt found in the more more former home was similar to the red cotton fibers. Okay. And, and, and then they checked in the buyer's home, and, and nothing similar was found in the buyer's home. Okay. Well, in, in the consideration of trying to, to move this along, I guess my, my final word on that would be, okay, there, I'll, I'll concede there was a fiber there that may have been consistent. I okay. thought there was later right. testing that ruled that out, but I'm not positive about that. But I also do there. know that the FBI has, has deemed all hair and fiber evidence of this nature to be junk science, and they're throwing out conviction after conviction right now based on the, the, fault, the junk science of the fiber and hair evidence from the 90s. Uh- I don't I I don't think you're exactly correct on that because I know one of the FBI's major main fiber experts was an expert for Baldwin mm-hmm. uh criticizing the note taking and work of the fiber examiner in this case. Right. Um I think that there is some there has been some issue on hair examination because DNA later DNA examination ends up showing that the hairs that were supposedly similar were not from the same source. Right. And it was the same methodology um, used and with... There, well, no, and fiber evidence and hair evidence were never... They weren't portrayed as being conclusive in this case. Right. But that goes to the weight. And, and in addition to the red rayon fiber, there were green cotton and green polyester fibers on Michael's clothing that were similar to a shirt from Eccles' trailer that belonged to Eccles' eight-year-old stepbrother. Mm-hmm. But again, they weren't able to check in Branches or Moore's home for they, similarities. They checked, Moore, they checked Moore and Byers. They checked Miss Kelly. They checked Baldwin. Baldwin's younger brother didn't own a shirt somewhere. Mm-hmm. Miss okay. Kelly's brother didn't have a similar shirt. I mean, you know, statistically, it's again, it's it goes to weight, not necessarily admissibility or credibility. Sure. So, so we could, let's move on from that. You've made your your position clear there, and then there's the lake knife. Jason Baldwin says that was his knife. He told me that that was in fact his knife, and I don't believe there's any evidence that there's that it was actually used at the crime scene. No one ever made that claim that it was actually the knife, other than Fogelman uh, hitting the the grapefruit and saying, "Don't these wounds look similar?" But no medical expert testified that that was the knife that did this. I'm sure. So right. I so I assume we we could I sum this up quickly by saying that your position is that knife was used in the murders, and my position is that I don't think that it was. Correct. Okay. And you know the admission of it being Baldwin's knife, uh, that's not one he was willing to make at trial. It was linked to Eccles at trial, not Baldwin. Well, Baldwin didn't testify at trial. And there, pardon? So Baldwin didn't testify at trial. Yeah, but his attorney still could have said, "Well, you know, that belonged to that belonged to my client," and it was thrown in. The, they could have given the circumstances of how it got in the lake. Well, attorneys can't testify; they'd have to ask that question of someone. Correct, and they had the diver on on the stand. They could have said, "Well, do you know this belonged to my my client?" Or you know, they could have gotten that in without Baldwin testifying. Mm-hmm. But the the claim that the knife was in the lake six months before the murders is based on odd stories and Baldwin tried to claim a Brady violation when in fact supposedly his mother's the one who threw it in the lake. Okay, so and he saw her throw it in the lake, so how's it a Brady violation if he knows exactly who it belonged to and how it got there? Mm-hmm. 
So again, trying to move through this, you think that your position is that it was thrown in the lake to conceal it and it was used in the crime. Okay, um, we'll move down to, we can do this one relatively quickly, the admission by Eccles at the softball field uh, where he confessed to murdering the boys and was overheard by uh, the girls' softball field. I don't know whether that happened or not, but I would, but for the purpose of this, I would concede that, let's say that, yes, he did say that. I'll concede that, that, that he, he told the, that he was saying that he, that he killed the boys at the softball field. And you also agree that he did do that. Okay, Michael Carson, uh, the testified against Jason Baldwin, and told the story. You know, he he later recanted that that testimony, and then also there was the was it a psychologist, somebody somebody in the juvenile system uh, that said that he actually gave Michael Carson all the information about that case yeah. in his sessions, and that that he knew, and he, he I believe he even said that he told the prosecutors that he knew Michael Carson was going to lie on the stand. Well, that is actually, that is a guy by the name of Danny Williams. And what happened was he went to the Baldwin's attorneys and told them, Michael Carson's lying, he's not honest, Uh, I gave him all the information, he and I talked about it. But then when they were preparing to have him testify at trial, he said, hey, I'm not going to be able to testify consistent with the things that I've been telling you. And so Paul Ford made the decision not to call Danny Williams to testify. Okay. Um, whether Danny Williams actually gave Carson any information, I don't know. I know the the provenance of Carson's statement is that he came out of juvenile. He apparently saw something on the news with the victim's families. He told his dad he was with Baldwin in, in jail and that Baldwin confessed. And his dad brought him to the Arkansas State Police and had him give a statement and polygraph and all that. He never mentioned any information from Danny Williams or, or being counseled by Danny Williams or anything of that nature. Uh, as for his alleged recantation, um, there's a false one from the 90s from a person whose uh, name happens to coincide with a famous song and a songwriter whose identity and existence can't be confirmed. And then there's the one in West of Memphis where he doesn't really necessarily recant. He says, I was taking so many drugs, I don't know what I was doing. But not, I lied. Mm-hmm. I never talked to Baldwin. He never he never admitted anything to me. And most importantly, he didn't appear at Baldwin's Rule 37 and recant under oath on the stand mm-hmm. at the Rule 37. Nor did he even appear and make a decision not to testify uh, the way Narling Hollingsworth did. I mean, not Narling Hollingsworth. I mean, Vicki Hutchinson. Mm-hmm. So... I, I don't think that he ever recanted. I think that, A, with West of Memphis, he was paid by Amy Bird to you know, say what she wanted him to say. Do you know that he was paid? I know that they have billboards up offering all kinds of money to people. That, but that's not what I asked you. I, because I hear I these did. claims a lot, and I, and I know the answer to a lot of them. And, but, and... Well, I mean, you know the, you know the answer, but um, like I said, anything that appears in a documentary 
is not the absolute truth. Mm-hmm. They're not under oath. Uh, they're not subject to penalties of perjury. That's why a lot of the attorneys say things in the documentary that they've never offered at court. Mm-hmm. Because Dan Spitham cannot say Miss Kelly was questioned for 12 hours in court because the evidence absolutely refutes that. Mm-hmm. But he'll say it to you, most likely, and he'll he said it in Paradise Lost, and he'll say it in other forums. He'll say it in interviews. Mm-hmm. But it's absolutely untrue. Miss Kelly was not questioned for 12 hours. Right. I agree with that. So, so as far as Michael Carson is concerned, and so you, you also find it consistent that Jason Baldwin, who has has maintained his innocence to the police through the entire entirety of this twenty five years, to everyone, just took someone that he didn't really know in the juvenile center and gave them explicit details about how he committed the crime. I mean, that that doesn't bring any red flags for you. That that doesn't seem likely while yeah. he's fighting for his innocence. It doesn't. Because a lot of some of the things Michael Carson said, like he was going to kick Miss Kelly's ass because Miss Kelly screwed everything up, and how he didn't think he was going to get convicted because they didn't have any evidence. Mm-hmm. Those are consistent. I mean, a lot of guilty people claim to be innocent. Well, that's true. And a person saying that they're innocent, even if they say they're innocent from day one, doesn't necessarily mean that they're innocent. Well, I agree with that too. I just find it strange to, I see a claim like this that even if they're lying, even if they are guilty and they're lying, that they decide, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to grab this random person in jail and spill it. I mean, that's just. I I think the way, the way Michael Carson describes it uh, coming about, no, it's not unusual. Okay. And there's things that, that he attributes, statements he attributes to Baldwin that make a lot of sense. Okay. Well, with that being said, unless I've missed something, Lisa, I think I've hit every point that you listed in your opening remarks here, and I think that you've made a good a good representation of why you believe they're guilty, and uh, I really appreciate you coming on and doing that, and then you know, I'm sure there'll be a lot of questions in the, in the Friday follow-up. I may even contact you before the Friday follow-up, but there's questions that were maybe directed towards you, um, or you're on the Facebook pages too, so you can always respond there as well. Okay, yeah. I hadn't had a chance to listen to the Friday follow-up yet. For this week? Or yesterday's episode, because I was working on preparing for this. Okay. Yep, and that sounds good, but thank you so much for coming in. And can you one more time tell people how they can check out your podcast? How can they get a hold of you? Sure. It's Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Michael Carnahan. Uh, We do have a Facebook page. You can follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L N. And we also have a WordPress, Clear and Convincing Podcast.wordpress.com. Uh, we've been on a little bit of a hiatus, but hopefully we're going to be kicking up again in the next couple of weeks. Awesome. And hopefully you'll find us. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people will. And again, thank you for those of listeners that don't realize we are recording this at uh, noon on Memorial Day. So I don't know what Lisa's going to do, but I'm getting ready to go throw some meat on the grill. I'm going to smoke a cigarette and get a Diet Coke. <laughs> well, that sounds good. Thanks so much, Lisa, and I'm sure we'll be All in right. touch before long. Thank you. Yep, take care. All right, bye-bye. This has been a long two-week trip to get through my interview with Lisa, but I hope that all of you found this interesting and informative. 
the reason that I decided to invite anyone who believes the West Memphis Three are guilty onto the show was because I wanted you to hear that perspective from someone who truly believes in their guilt. At the end of this conversation, I have to say that I enjoyed my chat with Lisa. She was very gracious and took a lot of time out of her day to make her case. And I hope that you all learned something and developed some opinions. And we'll talk about that more in this week's Friday Follow-Up. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer of Willow Photo and Designs for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. And a special thanks to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.